we didn't even have a full-time salesperson until January, which is wow. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? All right. Today on the podcast, I have a friend that I've we've been talking for a while in various Slack channels and Twitter threads. This is Ross Hudgens of Siege Media. He has built, honestly, in my opinion, one of the best agencies out there. And so I'm excited to have him come on for some very selfish reasons to learn from him. But Ross, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Jim. That's very nice of you to say. I don't know if that's true or not, but I appreciate it. Yeah. And he's on because he was accidentally in a cold email outreach spam thing that we're doing where we're trying to promote one of our products to get on podcasts. And he's like, Jim, why are you emailing me? You could just ask me. But anyway, now you're on my show. So so there we go. It, it worked. <laughs> so, so Ross, for people that don't know, first, like, what is Siege Media? And can you speak to any color around the size of the company or any numbers? Yeah, so we're an SEO-focused content marketing agency is our positioning. Mostly work with a mix of B2C and I would say professional consumer B2B brands for the most part. And yeah, we really focus on that side of the SEO world. Used to be in San Diego, Austin, and New York when fully remote. I currently live in Austin and we're around 115 people now, mostly comprised of content marketers and designers, developers in there, photographers, videographers, etc. So if I'm a consumer brand, I'm like, hey, I need content and I want SEO focused content. I'm going to Siege and I'm paying maybe five figures a month to get this strategy and you're doing all of the content on the website. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah, we like to specialize in the SEO side of things just because of the unique experience needed there. And sometimes you don't have as much of the ingrained business experience. So we can take that piece that we can be good at. And if they want to say, do thought leadership type content, they can nail that. But we do support with branded content very often. Very cool. So I already told Ross, this episode is very self-serving as he's built an, uh, you know, a team of over a hundred people with growth hit, we're approaching 30. And Ross, I'd love to go down the story of Siege in almost a linear fashion from like early days when it was you to like this size that you're at. I'm very interested in hearing these different inflection points where things really started to take off or where things get really dangerous. Because I'm trying to get like the, you know, the roadmap of, you know, what's ahead as we want to grow. But let's start in those early days. When, like, how did Siege even come to be? And when did you realize you had something special? Yeah, good question. So we, I was in-house building websites from scratch in like an insurance mortgage industry, had a boss that kind of micromanaged me, didn't see a lot of value in the future and that. And at the same time, it always been building my personal brand. I didn't know what that meant exactly. I didn't say, think I was necessarily going to have a, even start a business from it, but I just knew some positive things would come from that. So I actually attracted a few clients on the side as I was working full-time and then got that boss and realized, hey, I could probably announce that I, I, I quit and probably get a few more clients simply by saying that this is my job now. And I had a blog at that point, was focused on SEO and Google started changing. I made the jump, realized 
kind of the content marketing side, link building side of SEO was a thing. It was also what I had been good at because I was blogging and started that in Seattle up where you are. Met my wife up there, ended up moving down to a Long Beach, San Diego area and thought San Diego would be a good spot for recruiting. It, it was good overall. A lot of people wanted to live there. So it was pretty easy to hire people in that kind of area. The negative is that there weren't as many clients. So along that period, sort of started learning that about San Diego. I had a first version of our website and I think a big inflection point was I stepped out and at that time spent what felt like a huge amount of money and spent $20,000 on our website. It's actually still our website today. We've probably had it live for seven, seven years now, but felt like we got a very good website for the industry. And I feel like that was a big inflection point for us. So we did that. Before that, I was lucky enough to get asked to speak at MozCon. I think that just came from blogging and being active within our focus at the time. Got some big clients, Shutterfly and FTD, ProFlowers, who many people might recognize, were some of our first like legacy clients who said a lot. Sort of, it tends to happen when some of your early clients really become who you are as an agency sometimes. And yeah, that kind of happened. And then at that time, it was like, you should have multiple offices. That's how agencies do it when they seem big. And I didn't love San Diego. It's beautiful. But in terms of the culture, I didn't love it. So I ended up poking my head in Austin, thought there were more clients here, potentially liked the culture, started splitting some time and then got the office up and going here and turned out being right. Another inflection point, I think it helped show some legitimacy at that point. I don't know if this is true anymore of having multiple offices and got some clients in Austin, started just grinding in and out that direction and iteratively working on process, had a small office in New York as part of that same thought process. Obviously COVID hit, went 100% remote. And yeah, I mean, that's a real fast shortcut, but along the way, or shortcut story, those are some of the main kind of major milestones since going 100% remote, yeah. That's awesome. So what I'm hearing is, you know, whenever you broke out to start Seed, you already had a little bit of an unfair advantage because you're making content with your blog and you knew on day one, you could have clients. So you're de-risking that jump because a lot of people are like, you know, I I have this idea, but like making that jump is tough because you want to de-risk it. I get nervous when people start an agency or anything and they're like, oh, the clients will come. And for me, I didn't start mine until I had three that were in contracts to, to pay for me. So you have that going for you. You went over it super fast, but the fact that all of a sudden you're speaking at MozCon, which is one of the biggest SEO conferences is huge. And so that happened because of your blog. What was so good about your blog that got you on stage at a conference like that? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's definitely a laddering effect that happened there. I pitch strategically While I had a full-time job, got a column at Search Engine Land. So that's something you could pitch. I had hopefully a couple good ideas. And then the person who was a managing editor, uh, Elizabeth, I'm going to pronounce her last name wrong, so I won't say it. Uh, Elizabeth also ran a panel at SMX West. So naturally, that was easy in. I had no speaking experience. Obviously, I could make her look like an idiot. And I, uh, she had me on the panel. And then I actually did make her look like an idiot. It turns out I got asked to speak at SMX Advanced by pitching again. Some people actually called me out for being a terrible public spe- speaker, but I learned from the process. It's a longer story, but I learned from the process. And yeah, just just that ladder incremental thing. What I hear said a lot about guest posting, sort of same idea. You can do it with columns as well, but 
that's how I got there, I think. Also did things like five years earlier, I really respected Rand. I'm nervous young guy at the first, I think I went to maybe the first MozCon or something. It was like very early or somehow met Rand at a conference. I walked up to him and just be like, I respect you, Rand. You're like, he was like superhero and SEO at that point. Who knows if that relates to me getting asked to speak? I bet it doesn't hurt. But those were probably the small ladder things that eventually get me asked to speak there. That's really cool. And just putting yourself out there to reach out to someone like Rand, who, as people don't know, is the CEO of Moz and had like Whiteboard Friday. It's just a, an icon in the SEO space, especially at the time. I feel the same. Sometimes you do those cold emails and they can just fall flat. Other times they can be transformative for your career or doors that could open. So you're guest posting, you're laddering up, you're getting on stage, you're starting to get these clients come in. You know, one thing that I'm going through right now as we look to build out a team, can you give any more color on those inflection points around when did you go from person that's the expert doing the work to firing yourself and actually hiring people to do it? Because I think one trap that I fall into and other people fall into you sell the service, but you sell yourself with it. And that can be a really dangerous trap to go down. When did you start removing yourself from the business and selling your team or selling the process and not having you be the this thought leader, this blogger that's also doing the work? Yeah, I wish I could say I did it super early. I think we sort of had the benefit of the fact that we're not a purely consultative service. We do a lot of content strategy, no doubt. And I still do pitch the fact that I touch that. So, and it's true, I do touch that. I still do team training. So I try to think about it as what's a more scalable thing. But I did hire a manager relatively early and was always sort of involved in that process in terms of training. I think some ways it does need to come from, sometimes the CEO is gonna like lead, in an agency context is gonna lead some of that strategy. I don't think it has to be universally true. Of course, your co-founder could be, good at that as well. I don't think it hurts us today that I'm still at least like caring about those things, but I'm not actively doing the work to your point. And I haven't heard many people criticize that. If anything, I actually had an email today. I'm like, I'd love to get more involved with our COO. Like, how can I like jump in a little bit more, reinforce some things as long as you're not stepping on toes, which is, can be the counterbalance. Unfortunately, is you become that person and then Nobody can take on. They're all like the clients are asking to talk to you instead of trusting your managers, unfortunately. Yeah, you're hitting on some points that we're trying to work through where they go to that lead person as opposed to you, the CEO, because you can't wear all these hats. One thing that you also mentioned that I don't want to forget is you invested in your website. And one thing like we we did that as well. And I've been from some advice that you had gave maybe one of the Slack channels, which for us, it was also a big move at the time to have a legitimate website. But we just felt that our team wasn't represented on this ugly WordPress site that I had designed. So we went all in on it. And it became a really good point of differentiation with a lot of people out there. Because I don't know about you, but I was definitely the the cobbler with no shoes where we're supposedly a good marketing agency, but we are horrible in, at marketing ourselves. So our investment in the website was a move there. Like, what did that do for you having like a premium website? Was it getting more premium clients or was it just helping with the close rate or everything? Yeah, I, I want to say I deeply measured all of it. I do think I felt it. I mean, it was a change, a step change, I think, in quality from where we 
previously where you can't really see it now. I don't know. I could send you the archive in the show notes, but we had a $4,000, $6,000 website first. And that maybe felt like a lot at the time, or maybe I was just launching. It was just felt like a big change. And that was one of the things we were trying to accomplish similarly, which maybe is a good point is feeling like we could, we did land some premium brands early. So I think trying to continue that story of we are a premium luxury product through the brand design felt appropriate. Maybe that's not your positioning. That's not as important to you, but it felt important for us to have that narrative. And also we do a lot of design. We care about design. It was kind of part of the brand story for us. So it it made a lot of sense. I also did very early in my career with my personal website. It didn't look nearly as well, but I didn't have $2,000 in the bank. Or maybe that's exactly what I had. I invested in that too. So for maybe earlier people that are listening to this, there's definitely versions of this. Our designers will go back and look at our Wayback Machine and send me screenshots of the old website. And it's very painful. We literally, we were, we were growth hit. We literally had a fist in the logo that I made. It was pretty painful. So <laughs> th- this is what I'd love to hear is, okay, someone that's like going from like freelancer to having this agency, they want to go from 10 people to a hundred people, what are the things to watch out for? And I'll even lead the witness a little bit on this. You know, I, for me, it's like key hires that can make or break you, right? We've had some really good success in like a head of growth and a COO. Other times getting that senior level hire can be really painful when it doesn't work out. Another thing I'm curious to your thoughts on is creating redundancy within different positions. Cause like we have a division, but really that division is one person. And right. If they go on maternity leave or a sick leave, it's like that offering goes away. Right. So we're like trying to create more and more redundancy there. I don't know if you can think of when you're at like 30 people, six people, 90 people, the things that really helped unlock growth or something you struggled with. Um, and that's a pretty open-ended question, but would love if you go back to yourself, two or four years ago, the things you would give advice on or, or warnings for? Yeah. I mean, we we didn't even hire, have a full-time salesperson until January, which is wild. We had like full part-time people actually went off and on. It was me for a long time. So hiring someone earlier is something I would for sure recommend to people. Increasingly today, I think niching down is huge. Like even what you touched on there, I don't know how a lot of these full service companies do it, honestly. Like you, what you described is one of the weaknesses of having multiple services is you lose one person and hopefully they were strong. I would guess the only way you could counter that would be like try to make them partners like as much as you can to maintain that. Yeah, being focused as heck, I think is huge. And what I've heard could be wrong. I know there are companies that do this differently, but they'll sometimes add services once they get much bigger as compared to smaller. Instead, you stay super focused. And some a lot of the problems sort of work themselves out. And you realize you fix a problem is fixing it for everybody as compared to this one microservice that has its own problem, but it's one of eight services. So now you really haven't fixed much in your company by fixing that one problem. And then you get stuck. Yeah. Oh, that. I could, I'm, clear, I'm clearly biased because we're super focused on one ser- service mostly, but that is some of the things I would think, would think would stand out. So I think a lot of these agencies, 
you get this shiny object syndrome because you're doing something for them. And then the client's like, oh, do you also do this? And so a lot of people are like, oh, yes. And then you quickly go find a freelancer or someone to help you with that. And then all of a sudden you have a new product line where, oh, yes, we do TikTok ads. How did you stay disciplined to be like, no, I'm going to say no to your money, even though I could probably scramble and make it work. I'm just going to focus on one thing because I feel like you've always been very focused. Is that true or are you just good at hiding it? I think it's generally true. I mean, we that happens to us too. I guess a few things that might help with sleep there. One is you can build relationships with those other partners you get asked about a lot. So you, the fact that you've generated a lead is valuable. So it's reasonable to ask for, say, 10% of a referral to someone else. Some people do that. Some don't. Your mileage may vary about how you feel about that. But that, I think, allows you to feel a little bit better. Second is like when you do that work, nine times out of 10, it's not good work. So the th- plain... I feel like all I do is talk about the long game and some of the stuff. But if you think about, is it going to be a case study? If not, like, why am I doing the work? You can get the revenue short term, yes, but you need that. It's the long term case study project. Even if they don't make that much money, will indirectly make you a lot of money. And then if the other work, they're not going to refer, you're not going to get a high NPS score off that work. They're going to churn maybe faster than the others. They will churn faster. It's thinking of that as, yeah, this might be a good short term, but it's taking away from my ability to do something much better long term, potentially. Yeah. Oh, man. It's so tough because as we got started, we would say yes to everything because we were in survival mode as like a growth team. But then we quickly realized, okay, we're okay at that. But we're actually really good at this one thing and we just need to like hone in and focus. And so there's actually nothing I feel like more empowering in a sales call when you're like, we don't do that. We don't do that. We don't do that. But we do this and you can have conviction. You do it extremely well. The other thing that I don't think people realize, at least I didn't, is building an agency that can scale. And when you have one offering that you know you do really well, you can get better and better at it, make systems around it and train on it better. Can you speak to building an agency on a service that can scale versus customizing it? Because I don't know, because with what you do, you could have easily jumped into other avenues to test. Yeah, good question. I guess one cautionary tale is actually one way I messed that up that maybe I didn't touch on is, I don't know, I messed it up. It worked for us for a long time, but we did a lot of manual outreach and link building. And we'd have these content marketers that we hired to do that work. The problem is that it's a very intensive training process. And then the people churn because they sent a lot of out, some outreach emails. So the more you build a role that's specifically for your company, you can still train for that role about what makes it growth hit or siege media, the harder it's going to be hard for you. So we actually had a lot of, we could have scaled faster if I didn't build this unicorn position that does not exist in the wild of a research writer and average person. And that same role churned. And hopefully this new one, yeah, we're now in a direction where they're just doing research and writing and still very early days, but more bullish that retention will be better for that role. Training won't be as hard, it's still hard, but yeah, that that's a positive. I feel like I lost your original question in thinking <laughs> thinking of that response. But- no, that was really good. You hit on some of these unicorn job titles you put out there. You're like, oh, of course it has to exist, but it's so hard. We struggle with that. It's like, we need someone who understands data, UI, UX, but also is like a world-class designer. And yeah, sometimes the, the intersection can be a little tough. You know, one thing that like, with having an agency that's a people-based business, 
What are some advice you could give around finding the right people, whether it's the people that are already out there that have been there, done that, or it's like these up and comers that you can train because the thing we're running into, like we could close a lot, a decent amount more business, but it's building out that hiring engine or the training process is tough. Like what have you guys done so well to scale to a hundred people? Yeah, we had someone who actually was our first salesperson in her part-time like lulls from that. She would work on, she was a former in the weeds person, Caroline Gilbert, who's amazing. She's probably not listening to this, but she helped us build what's called Siege Learn, which is actually an external course for us. So our partial justification there is we could sell it externally. And I've heard you talk about this, of there's a buyer persona who looks at our website that we can't ever service a course that can maybe help them do it themselves might be positive, but also we justify it because it, it helps our internal team. So we had that person both do sales and build out that training course took a long time, but was definitely a positive of kind of helping with our training process. I think documenting every, another evolution is we went remote. We hadn't documented a lot of things because we did a lot of things internally. Now we have a huge library of Google Docs that we can quickly edit. We have a learning development full-time role on staff. It's not something at 30 that most likely makes sense. But those are the kind of things that have been helpful. We did invest early on like, I, I took things seriously, like our careers page. I like really thought about that. We had a careers video that might actually still be live, but it's probably now, it's definitely outdated now. I need to pull it down if it's not down already. But I invested in that video because trying to make it easier to like obviously join us and think about things like growth tracks. You think you don't think about this directly impacting your business, but are you giving people growth? Are you trying to really truly help them? That helps a lot. Even if they end up leaving, they hopefully leave on a good note and then that is a positive side effect on your agency. Yeah, I heard this quote around you can create these transformative careers where they come in at this level, but through your two-year or four-year track, they could come out and then it opens all these doors for them. So even if it's not their forever place, you can leave them very happy so it has a positive reputation, which it sounds like you guys are doing. So I'd be interested, you as a founder, I want to hear your goals because the idea of building a huge agency, a lot of people can hate on agencies, but if you run it the right way like you do where it's very focused, almost niche, but it can grow pretty big. You can have a really amazing cash flowing business. Was the goal always to make this a big hundred person agency or did that evolve? And how does that align with your lifestyle design goals? Yeah, good question. I wish I could say I fully have that nailed down. I think my thought process around the along the way was I just wanted to grow generally. It wasn't even the idea of money. It was just like challenge myself, enjoy the process. And something about just, you hear about those companies that are sound exciting in their own way that are around 30 people and just don't grow, but they're perfectly optimized for profit. That's awesome. Something about that to me would feel like it would get boring. I don't know that for sure, but that was the one thought I had about that, I think, that always led me to keep growing, if not like really aggressively. And I think that's one thing I am proud of is we didn't grow super aggressively. We just did it methodically. And that was still painful methodically. Yeah, I've been doing this for 10 years. Very lucky to have been successful. I do try to optimize more for stress. So I, as we've grown, you get more people that adds to your stress. 
Yeah, there's a lot of like little knives that can cut you that compounds. I have had a great COO, Melissa Holmes, that I promoted recently into that role in the last year. Another thing I did late when I that burden was starting to compound and add up in stress. So currently what I'm doing now is more of the strategy, high level, trying to stay out of the weeds. And that stuff's always been fun for me. And I think that if you truly care about the process and like the product you're offering, which I do love SEO and content, I'm weird that way. I think I could do that for a long time and it could still be at siege for a long time, as long as I'm optimizing for that other piece and have people in the right seats that are good at the things that I now would not be. I don't see why I couldn't keep going and cash flowing and yeah, having a nice balance of success and, and not. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you can optimize for the things you enjoy, then hire for things either you don't enjoy or where other people that are specialists could thrive. And I've struggled myself with hires and I'm not going to ask this question because I feel like everybody asks it where it's like, Oh, who's the first person you should hire. I would think of it differently as we have grown, some of our best hires have been two forms of hires. It's the been there, done that, where the job you're hiring them to do, they've already done and have this track record. Another buddy who has an agency that's much bigger than mine, he hired a proven COO that has already sold a company. And he's like, it's been transformative. This other hire is that up and comer where you're like, they haven't done it before, but man, they are this rising stock you just want to buy up all the shares of. And one person, like our new VP of BizDev, he's fantastic. And he's that been there, done there. And then like my partner's like that up and comer. Are those two like personas that have been impactful for you? You mentioned your COO. Was that someone that rose within? Or did you hire that gray haired person that had done it and they were just transformative for Siege? So I actually, and I don't think this is necessarily the right thing. I probably took too long on too many things. I did most of those uh up and comers. So the catch with our COO is she was very experienced. Long story of how she started in a kind of niche role for us and just developed. But she had brought a lot of experience that clearly came through and like further work with her that made that a no brainer. So for the most part, I have not done that. That kind of came back to that unicorn position. That's where I got, we ended up getting stuck a lot is that I had, we built this unique process and link building thing offsite. Like it's hard to even hire senior people outside who could like manage outreach strategy. Hopeful that'll be less the case today. And we could have hired a salesperson way earlier. Didn't do that. So I do like that overall strategy. One of the things that I think gave me pause earlier was things are tight. It's like easier said than done to go at 30 people or 20 people and then go hire a COO. That's six figures, more than six figures for sure. Obviously, you can give them some equity and switch that off. But not a lot of the agencies have that liberty to make that. Or it's a big psychological jump, which I don't think I ever got to. And that's not perfect for sure. Yeah, I do the up and comers because you can actually de-risk that hire because they've already been proven, even though it can maybe take longer or, you know, it, it's not, they don't have that knowledge bank from doing it before, but it's a pretty fun way when you can give someone that career track that's literally ceiling list, which is pretty cool. So I sent you this question ahead of time, but if the whole podcast run is if you were starting today, if, if you were building an agency from scratch today and you wanted it to just go to the moon, what are some of the traits you would want to make sure it has to build a best in class agency? Yeah, something I think we, I could have started doing and then stopped. And now I'm, we're actually starting to do it again is we didn't even care about content marketing for ourselves, ironically. 
And one of the things that I think I don't, it's not universally true. So this might not be externally as useful, but we're in a unique position where if, a, if our teams become underutilized, they literally can deploy to Siege Media and do the same work for Siege Media. So why haven't I done that? We are now more authoritative of a website. So hopefully it's the right inflection point to see success. So I probably would have done that earlier in terms of, ha- and maybe there's versions of this for other companies. You've heard about people having their own affiliate sites and what have you. They can be distractions. And I know we've talked about focus, but if you have a certain area that you can think about how to health it, always 100% utilize, even if it's not you're getting paid that second, your team, I think there's real value there. But it's not always feasible in every business model. But that's one thing. I think I would have hired a salesperson earlier, took myself out of those weeds for sure. I think that was a big mistake. And it was also helpful for stress as I touched on it. When you don't have a true dependency and you're just like back and doing vision stuff and strategy, that's helpful. If you have deadlines for things, that's one of the things I talk, I've realized is when you have those deadlines, that's where a lot of stress does come from, unfortunately. So yeah, yeah, those are some things I would have delegated faster for sure. And then yeah, put build that re- engine that kind of feeds itself earlier than I'd have. Yeah, no, I agree. Investing content marketing earlier, like saying we finally hired in sales. It's oh wow, our sales velocity has gone up, our close rate's gone up because we have a professional dedicated to it. And it's not just me throwing together some Google slides with the price on it. You know, what What are some other things? You gave some really good advice around don't just launch some full service agency. Choose something and do one thing and do it really well. I don't know if there's any advice to that. And also, can, I'm very interested to get your thoughts on pricing because right now we're looking to make a big shift from potentially retainer-based pricing to something that's more around almost like hourly where I've changed my opinion on that. But any advice on best practices for your positioning and even your packaging and pricing? Yeah. One thing I like to tell people is if if the way you describe yourself, is it, are you the the person people think about? Or could you be that person that people think about very obviously for that? Or are there like eight options for that? Realistically, our industry has gotten more saturated. I'm like thinking about that actively. But earlier, I think we were the only ones who positioned the way we did. And we were the ones people thought of. And maybe we have a little uh, acceleration there. I don't know if enough people actually think about it in that way. Of I just do SEO services, but should you be SEO services for healthcare or the marijuana industry or e-commerce? All great niches that even if that... SEO for e-commerce seems like it should be huge in terms of the agencies that do that. It's actually not that many. I can't think of them off the top of my head. So that I think is big. And then on pricing, lots of different things I have learned over the year. There is a good pricing book from Two Bobs guys. I don't know if you know. Oh uh, yeah, David C. Baker, right? Yeah, David C. Baker, his partner on that podcast. Maybe I can find it and send it to you after this. But yeah, his co-person on that has a good pricing book. He smartly prices it at like $200 just for <laughs> the book. And one of, one of the things I took away from that is you, some of it's obvious is you anchor to the high price item and you show mid price item and then you do low one. You can, it, it probably de- depends what takeaways you'd bring for each person that reads it, but it is a good book and it's, it has good value. It's worth $200. So I suggest checking that out. We do units. It's a system we've gone back and forth. People compare us to an Upwork writer, which is just not comparable. 
We don't want to get that mindset. We've worked different things of not even showing how many blog posts we do and just focusing on the value. We'll see if that helps. We have done ROI focused modeling since the start. So I think that's huge in terms of warranting our cost that other people might just be like, yeah, let's do five blog posts. But we've been, we've always made sure there's ROI. And that's one reason we say no to clients is if there's no ROI there, we pass. So it like reinforces itself in two different ways, which is great. Yeah, I remember you said before, you know, make sure you show the thing you do, the deliverable, have that aligned with revenue generated. So there's a clear connection in, in, in business outcomes and objectives. So you're able to project, hey, here's a potential lift in organic and what value of organic is around revenue. Is it about getting that buy-in before you anchor them with the price that you show them? I assume that's key. Yeah, we actually do it reverse order. We just show them the price. I have thought that. I'm like, why do I show them the price? And then the outcomes. Some of it, I think it's important, but it's probably important to not overthink it too much. I don't think just showing them price first has ever lost us a deal. I could be wrong, but it's. I do think you can end up getting lost in some of these. If I put this first, I'm going to make a million more dollars. And I'm guessing that's not the case. It's like everything else together, for sure, pricing is important. What makes life easier on your team to fulfill the work? That's one thing I think we've been thinking. I was like, we have this unit system. It confuses our team. Is that even worth it? Even if it helps sales. Yeah. But that book was Blair Ends, Pricing Creativity. Suggest checking that out. It's a good one. Oh, cool. I'll definitely put that in the show notes. And pretty, pretty impressed if he does it for $200. I feel like you have to if you have a book on, on pricing. So you know what we struggle with is it's like feast or famine. It feels like with the agency where everyone's at capacity, everyone's overworked and you have good margins, but you're worried there's going to be a walkout or it's the opposite where, you know, leads are a little light. Not everyone's at capacity and it's trying to manage the, this accordion of the agency life of keeping people at capacity, not burning them out, making sure you have a healthy pipeline. And so I'd be interested, how have you managed that with a hundred people as far as having enough clients to serve everybody, not over hiring. So it kills your margins. You know, what have you all done? Yeah, I honestly sort of forget what I did early. We've improved this greatly. This is one thing Melissa and team have done a great job on the operation side. We now have predictable hiring cohorts. So we'll hire for certain dates that we also tie to new clients. So we'll have New clients start 7-1, and then we'll have a cohort start 7-1. We definitely don't try to put the new hire right on a new client as part of that. But having that structure, we always start on these dates. We also set some guidelines around we have to have a signed contract 10 days before the kickoff. Just like small things that kind of can distress the process for people have been helpful. We do want to keep improving, like just really started using a CRM in a pipe drive, which we're liking. Can we predictably use that to make better hiring decisions? It's not a perfect scenario. I do think that is one of those benefits of, again, focus is if you're splintered in terms of your service offering, that gets really panicky most likely. But if you're more consolidated, even at 30, someone churns, you do have some benefits there. Some small things I also just thought of, we did develop what we call like a side hustle program where current team members could do, say, extra design work or extra writing work if they want to. It's voluntary. So if, say, we did have either excess capacity or not, we could take on a little work. They can make some more money. 
And also is a nice flux in case you lose a client or two, you don't have any kind of like payroll risk. You just come down in terms of that contractor or not contractor, but it really just like extra pay costs to your internal team. So that's one thing I would suggest try to find a solution for pay well, and then you'll have people raise their hand and want to do it. That's awesome. And so were those people hourly as far as how you're paying them so they could flex up or down with you? They were full time. So what we would do is say it was a blog post and we would set a rate for it and say, we'll pay you $1,000 or $900 or what have you for you to execute this blog post. So it's that I don't know functionally how we executed. I want to say it was like a bonus. Uh, I could be wrong, but how like operationally it worked, but that was a general structure. Not we charge per hour more that you would expect to do this range and we'd pay you that consistent amount so we can make sure we're still profitable on it. Okay. That's super helpful. So you build this super agency, you've got the positioning dialed in, you've got the pricing, you've created the systems, you know, I can't believe how long you've been doing sales. It's clearly worked very well. So you've got sale. Talk about someone in your shoes thinking through one, how to build a company so it could be ripe for acquisition and what you should think through if like you even would want to do an acquisition, if it's right or, or wrong for your business or your yourself personally. Yeah. So the things I think could be th- that were helpful. And I, I know we talked about this a little bit beforehand. We're not being super loud about it, but we actually went through an acquisition last year took on some great investors. I'm still a very significant shareholder in Siege. But what led me to that decision partially was the fact that I had been doing this for a while. Siege was getting pretty big. If you just think about the construction of like your your potential net worth and how diversified you are with everything, with your client roster, with anything, you should be diversified. So in some ways, I was coming pretty heavy in Siege. And that necessarily was not necessarily, I don't know this is the best thing ever to be really heavily in one thing. You never know what can happen, et cetera. So that was a big reason I took some chips off the table. And I think is a good idea for anyone is to look at your overall net worth kind of construction and see, would it make sense? Even if I feel like I can go another 10 years, would it not be a dumb idea to take on a smart partner and keep this thing going? And one of the things I got to as well is I'm not a finance person and our partners are finance people. So if we want to grow and maybe expand to the UK or Australia or acquire other agencies that are complementary and actually can expand our services in a way that I'd feel confident are good, they can help us do that work and be good at that, that I wouldn't have the faintest idea of how to start and do. So that was another reason is that bring in other smart partners. I'm a single founder. So it's always, hey, how can I get other people that can help after doing it, like essentially myself, it's been great. I've been listening to COO role in the last year, which really came at the same time, but I've been doing it myself besides, of course, the great team around us that supported that growth. Yeah, th- those all kind of led me to that decision to do that. And I potentially could be helpful for others as well. No, very cool. Getting more firepower too, especially if you're wanting to keep grow it is always nice because... It's like a bootstrap business center. It's always fun to go down the path. Wait, what if I had more resources to help do this easier rather than just have to fund everything from cash flow and whatnot, or just more sophisticated people to come in and give that firepower, but no, very cool. What 
you know, you have one kid, another on the way. How has being a dad like impacted your mindset as a business owner? Yeah, it's been unique. I'm definitely way more structured. So I appreciated your note to me before this gym that you're going to start stop right at five or what have you. So clear guardrails. I got to watch my son from five to six. Also, I watch him in the morning from eight to nine. So you have, I think it's just a productive productivity like machine. You know, you have, you have so little time. I think everyone sort of, hopefully, especially in entrepreneur scenarios, realize how little time they have, but it's further emphasized when you don't have it. Like, I can't really do work outside of those goalposts. I can still be a good father, which yet to be seen if I can deliver on that, but I'm trying and I want to do that. And it seems like that's really what's necessary. So it just, I think further really starts you thinking down the road of, should I do this? Should I take this coffee meeting? Should I take this lunch? Should I do this other? You really, I mean, I think a lot, and I think it's a smart mindset. You don't really say no to many things for a while. But we're talking about focus in a lot of ways. I think it's maybe it's further just clarifying the absolute focus you have. And you can't be sloppy anymore. you got to be dialed in to continue to do a good job in, in both roles. Yeah. If you want to be productive, have a kid because there's procrastination isn't even an option with the finite time you have. I agree. I feel like early in my career, <laughs> I would say yes to everything and that would open doors. But then it's shifting. It's like, my default now should be no. So the yes is just on the things that matter. But it's so hard. I really juggle with that balance of saying yes to everything versus like having your blinders on and being focused. Agreed. Yeah, it's tough. There's it, It's always painful to say no to someone. I think that's part of it too, is like you enjoy relationships. And sometimes that justifies the coffee meeting in itself. It's just, hey, I like this person and that's okay. And yeah, but you still got to, or you end up the other side. And I talked about stress, like, you realize you start saying yes to those things. That's how stress pokes itself in because you feel you don't have enough time to actually move your business forward. Oh yeah, overcommitting. Yeah, I'm a yes man, so it's it's a problem. So so one thing I like to end with every podcast is what's the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career? Yeah, it ties into your last question nicely. Is Will Reynolds, who I always look to as a mentor, did it before me. I think he's founded his agency 10 years before and always, in my opinion, did things the right way from what I saw. He was super gracious with his time. So anytime I had a question about the hardest things, anything, he would jump on a call pretty quickly with me and be helpful. I haven't done as much recently, but I always thought that was super awesome. And like, also, you can make the argument that we're mildly competitive with them. So the fact that was also the case, despite being competitive, was pretty, pretty awesome. And I think Will, that kind of shines through in everything Will does, but that's something I've been trying to do more is a little more mentor things. And I think that is helpful. And I think we should all pass it on for sure. Yeah, that's pretty cool. He could have easily thought it was competitive, but it's like he was sitting on all this experience and advice and the fact that he passes it on is pretty cool. So, so Ross, where should people go if they want to learn more about you or Siege Media or anything that you're up to? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. Ross Hudgens is the username. And then LinkedIn, Ross Hudgens as well. So if you just search me, I try to, we've been trying to eat our own dog food recently. So I'll post content relatively frequently there. We have a YouTube channel where we're publishing videos pretty frequently. Have a podcast. Hopefully we'll have you on soon, Jim. And uh, yeah, and yeah, that's the spiel. Spiel.
Yeah, no, the blog's really good. You wrote one recently around a big change you've made around backlinks that if anyone's doing SEO this year, they should be reading that. I actually sent that through in our little newsletter, but no, it's a really good blog. If anyone's doing anything around organic, definitely check it out. The Ross dude, awesome to catch up with you. Thanks for coming on and hopefully we can talk again. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jim. It was fun. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthHit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.